If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hardfork today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hardfork. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Randy Weingarten. She leads one of the country's most powerful unions, the American Federation of Teachers. Representing 1.7 million teachers across more than 3,000 chapters, or locals as they're called, Weingarten has been at the forefront of the debate about when and how schools reopened in the pandemic. In the process, she's attracted a lot of controversy, including heat from some parents who think she's been slow to address the needs of students over teachers. So I wanted to talk to her about vaccine mandates, mass mandates, and a whole lot more that impacts how, what, and where American students will be learning this fall. Randy, welcome to Sway. Thank you, Kara. Honored to be with you. We have a lot to talk about. What do you want to start with? Vaccines, mandates, mass mandates, digital divide, or CRT? (laughs) I mean, you have been in the middle of a lot of stuff. Well, why don't we start with, most importantly, kids need in-school learning. So schools need to be open this year safely, but we need them to stay open. So the vaccines, single most important way of keeping people safe and masks, second most important way, plus ventilation and the other, you know, layered mitigation that we knew about last year. But let's go back to last July. Your union supported strikes over teacher safety. And last September, while schools were trying to reopen, you were still resisting. You said, quote, If you don't have the infrastructure for testing and you don't have the safeguards that prevent the spread of viruses in schools, we believe you cannot reopen in person. You got a lot of heat for that. Do you stand by that decision? If you look at the resolution we passed, if you look at all of the comments we made, we said in-school learning is really important, but it has to be safe. And what was happening in places like Florida and others is that they didn't care about masks. And they didn't care about making it safe. When you made that decision, obviously things were very different than they are now. Right. But a lot of parents were pissed. The transmission rates for kids were low. When you made that decision and made those statements, you knew you were going to attract a lot of ire from people. How do you look back at it? Look, we've all learned about what happened with COVID and who got sick with the first mutations. We now know that kids can spread and catch COVID more with this mutation. So I would say that we've all learned a lot from this. If we had an administration that actually was helping us instead of making teachers the issue last year, I think we wouldn't have had to revert to issues like safety strikes. In fact, by having that, it created more safety in places like Chicago, in places like Detroit, in places like New York. So at the end of the day, I believe that safety of our kids is a community responsibility. Safety of the adults who work with kids is a community responsibility. That's why in May, I was really crystal clear and said, the vaccines have been game changers and we have to be open in school full-time next year. And you've noticed we have put our money where our mouth is, which is why there's $5 million worth of grants that we've given to our locals 
to stand up vaccine clinics, to go door to door. Okay. So one of the things that the New York Times said was other essential workers, both unionized and non-unionized, accept the risks of working outside their homes, even as they protested the lack of N95 masks and other safety measures. But teachers were primed for a fight. I guess the question for a lot of parents were, what makes teachers so special And I know your job as a union leader is to protect teachers, but how do you respond to critics who say that the trade-off came at the expense of students? Actually, I don't accept the notion that all I do is represent teachers. You know, if you look up and down the line, most of what teachers try to advocate for are what kids need. And so what teachers did this year is that they went from remote to in-person to hybrid or back to remote, back to in-person there was a lot of fear about what to do. And at the end of the day, unlike other essential workers, all of whom are incredibly important, teachers are dealing with kids and we did not actually know whether or not kids would follow the rules. It turned out that kids actually followed the rules more than adults did. And so we learned a lot, frankly, in September and October about how to keep schools safe. And so Schools tried to reopen a lot of them in a hybrid way, September, October. There was another surge by November. November, December, January was terrible. And then there was an attempt to reopen everything from February through June. Seven out of 10 of our members wanted schools reopened, understood the importance to kids, wanted to make sure that they were safe. All right, let's talk about that. It's something you definitely got ripped for back in July. The quote, we're going to try to open schools. Try didn't inspire a lot of confidence when you earlier said we must open schools. And I know maybe it was a poor choice of words, but can you guarantee schools will reopen uh, on August 30th? So schools are, so... (laughs) Careful, Randy. I mean, look at this. I'm the union leader of 3,500 locals. Mm -hmm. I'm not even the school superintendent. I know there are ways to make sure that schools across the country are reopened and stay reopened. And that is what every single one of my locals are intending and doing right now. So every place that has already reopened has reopened. There have been cases in Florida and Texas so that schools are now closed because of those cases. And that's part of the reason why we are pushing so hard for universal masking. But everywhere in the country, with the exception of Pittsburgh, because they have some kind of driver shortage, every place is reopening for full-time school instruction. And that is really good news. Does the Delta variant change your calculus? Why is it safe now? So the Delta variant has made things more difficult, but ultimately vaccines and the other layered mitigation, in particular ventilation and masking, can and will help stop transmission in schools. And the other thing that parents and educators are looking for is to make sure that If there is a case, there is transparency about what that case is and how to handle it and what the quarantining is and things like that. But what Delta has done is it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And because kids under 12 can't get vaccines, the issue is 
what else can we do to stem uh, transmission in a school? Sure, but how bad would things have to get in order for you to call for schools to shut down? Do you have a red line within um, your union? Kara, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, if I, let me put it this way. If I actually said publicly what that red line is, then that will then become the story. And in fact, that was the problem last August, September, and October. I answered that question honestly. People would say, oh, see, she really wants to close down. So we have to follow what the health experts have saying. You indeed become a lightning rod for a lot of people, uh, and especially conservatives who question the kind of influence you and the AFT wheeled over these CDC guidelines. Back in May, one group called Americans for Public Trust got access to emails between the CDC and your union that made it seem like AFT had some sway over the CDC, which was supposed to be an apolitical science-based institution. Can you address that? So the bottom line is the CDC is supposed to talk to all the end users before they put out guidance to find out how it will affect people. That's actually good science and good public health. And the CDCs, regardless of of what the administration were, you know, would do that routinely. The emails that the New York Post got was they had not thought about accommodations for teachers who were in multi-generational families. They had not thought about accommodations for kids who were immunocompromised. So we raised that issue And they said, oh, what a good idea. Could you send us some language? I mean, that was what, you know, went back and forth. And frankly, the fact remains, we actually had more communication at that point with the Trump CDC, but it was lower level communication. So there was nothing nefarious about it. I was doing my job. They were doing their job. And the emails, like, of course, the emails should come out. It's not, you know, it wasn't it wasn't secret. One in those emails at top, AFT official called the union a, a CDC quote thought partner, which I think caught people's attention. But you feel like that's just you talking to government agencies that affect your constituencies. Yes, and I think that frankly, it would have been better if all of this was done as hearings. Transparency and openness is important. We have to deal with the trust issues. And what happens too often, and I see this with the right-wing media that wants to make our voices toxic, they've said this about, you know, about teaching history. And so, you know, that's what they tried to do. That's why I don't mind at all ever testifying in front of public officials in public to talk about what schools need. So so I want to get to that a little bit more later, but let's talk about uh, vaccine mandates first, which could change the equation for school reopening, as as you said. Um, You shifted on that, on vaccine mandates for teachers. Earlier this month, you said you now supported a mandate. Talk about this shift in positions and what took so long. So, you know, we have to, this is, you have to be open to change in you know, given the circumstances and given the facts on the ground. In the beginning of July, I certainly wouldn't have envisioned that the Delta variant would have caused so much disruption. And given that we had thought that vaccines were key, last October 2020, um, we said, let's do whatever we can to get vaccines once they're authorized into the arms of as many people as we can and do it volitionally. What 
changed was the Delta variant. And three things I think changed. Number one, the Delta variant, the surge in Southern states. The second thing you saw was you saw cases of kids go up hugely from in a four-week period of time from 24,000 to 121,000, according to the American Pediatricians Association. The third thing you saw is that kids under 12 couldn't get vaccines. And the fourth thing you saw was that, by and large, vaccines were proven themselves to be safe and effective. And so knowing all that, I signaled to people that we were bringing you know, the union leadership back together again to reconsider the position of volitional. And um, it was a matter of of conscience in the end. I knew I was going to get grief. So how hard was it to get union leadership and more importantly, rank and file behind that? You've got more than 3,000 locals. How confident are you that they'll also negotiate with their employees for vaccine mandates that you're urging? What I was pleased about was that we operate as a democracy. If you believe that our job is to help make sure that schools are safe, and which I believe it is for our kids and for teachers and the rest of the education community, and you know that vaccines are the single most important way to do it, we got to a resolution passed unanimously by our leadership that said that we'll work with employers, not oppose employers, on their vaccine requirements, including mandates. And what's happened thus far is that that's what everybody has done. You see California did it on a statewide basis. New Jersey is doing it on a statewide basis. New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago are doing it on local basis. Some of the vaccine policies have become, you know, vaccinate or test. Some of the vaccine policies are full vaccination with the exemptions of medical or religious. But at the same time, you know, I get emails um, frequently from people who have told me that they will drop the membership if we endorse vaccine mandates. But I also get emails from parents who say, I will never have a vaccine for my child. So what's happened, unfortunately, Kara, in this world is that we have a very polarized society right now and, and the chaos and the confusion is the hallmark of some factions, and you have to do the best you can. Should teachers be required to approve a vaccination if required? You know, there's always this issue about privacy. Uh, uh, Yes, I think that we should. I think that this is a community responsibility. And I think that the issue about distrust of the government authorities runs so deeply that there's always this pushback. If I could do anything, if I had a magic wand, and I could do anything in life, it would be to try to recreate the trust in public schooling, the trust in government doing the right thing. I think the level of distrust um, and a sense of this libertarian sense of freedom as opposed to the community social contract. The first class I ever taught when I taught as a school teacher at Clara Barton High School in New York City was about the Lockean social contract and that in a democracy, um, you give up some rights in order to make sure that you create community and the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
Yeah. Well, we're 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 a long way from Locke, let's just say. Yeah. Um, so mask, let's talk about mask then, because that's another area where this is popping up. Mask mandates for teachers. Where do you stand on that? Well, we stand, again, in beginning of July, completely supported the CDC that said, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. We just didn't want to be the mask police, obviously. Teachers didn't want to do that in their classrooms, given the Delta surge and that, you know, kids under 12 can't um, get vaccinated and that half the kids 12 and over are not vaccinated, even more, I think 60 percent, that, you know, universal masking is necessary, at least right now. I understand when parents are saying, where's the off ramp? You know, we can't have masks forever. And I agree with them. And I understand that about the social cues and wanting to see smiles and wanting to see kids' faces. And frankly, as an asthmatic, I really understand the point about labored breathing because I have labored breathing every time I wear my damn mask. You know, so we do have to have some off ramps in terms of, you know, when can we get rid of these masks? But given the Delta variant, we completely agree with the CDC that there should be universal masking. Okay, so with governors trying to ban mask mandates, Governor Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, as you know, threatened to stop paying school officials if they institute mask mandates. This is after he issued an executive order banning school districts from requiring students to wear masks. What do you make of this and what are you doing to support those school officials if they do get penalized? We are supporting all of those school officials in Florida. The uh, Leon superintendent was incredibly courageous because he may lose his job over this. What DeSantis seems to want to do is take out the superintendents and the school boards that put safety over politics. And so you have over a million kids in Florida that now are in public schools that have universal masking. So what are you doing to support those school officials if they do get penalized? We are supporting them on a local level. Our our affiliate is supporting them. We're supporting the lawsuits that are being filed right now by parents and by Southern Poverty Law Center. And, you know, we're going to these school board meetings and standing up with them. We're doing the organizing on the ground. And the same is true in terms of um, Texas. In fact, the Texas school system has stopped enforcing Abbott's rules against mass mandates, at least as it pertained to schools. And, you know, we're fighting in the court of public opinion as well as in the courts. What is the battle over this? Tell us about the way power is divided in the school system between school boards, parents, teachers, between states and federal government. I have been struck by these meetings. They're quite vehement. It's about something else. When people get upset, I always am like, what's actually happening? What do you imagine is actually happening with this? Is it just about masks or something else? No, I think it's about two things. Um, And it initially, it initially, um, it initially uh, made... (laughs) Sorry, let me just take a minute just to say hello to everybody. Hello. Yes, you can watch me for a second and then I got to go back to this. See, come over, see Kara. She's on the phone. Hi. She's on here. Wave to Kara. Cool. This is your grandchildren, right? Anya, do you want to wave to Kara? Oh, I see your hand from the back. There's Anya. (laughs) This is Zelda, who's going to uh, public uh, kindergarten. And she's, yes. First day of her second week. Okay. Fantastic. Say bye-bye. Bye-bye, my sweetheart. Mm. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> no problem. Don't ever apologize for uh, children. Um, or you were talking about mass. What does it mean? So what I think it means is 
COVID affected all of us, but affected all of us differently. Communities that were poor, black and brown, got more affected. And it created lots of trauma. And then having leadership that was more political as opposed to more focused on the health and safety of America in terms of Trump was really problematic. So we have, you know, that crisis. And then on top of it, we had the death of George Floyd. And then on top of it, you know, a 2020 election and then an insurrection. So there's huge trauma. And what I think has happened is that the trauma has been exploited by the right. And I'm not saying that people on the left don't, you know, fight in the extremes as well. But when people are so traumatized, when there's a question about future, when there's a question about what's going to happen to my kids, what's going to happen in a year from now? You know, my kid didn't get to graduate. My kid didn't have kindergarten in person. And so it becomes easy to exploit this trauma. And that's what I think is happening. And Well, it's interesting because your positions have turned you into a lightning rod in some circles. I, My mom, who watches Fox News all the time, where you are a, a villain, apparently, I was telling her I was talking to you and she said, oh, I hate her. She doesn't even know who you are, which was fascinating. And I want to read you this quote from the American, my, my mom, ignore my mother completely. It's fine. Um, well, I don't want to ignore she, your mother. No, I, I do because I thought it was, it was shocking. I was like, you don't even have children in school. You don't even, it doesn't even matter to you. But Kara, look what they did to, but there's also misogyny here. And there's also, look what happened to Hillary Clinton. Look what happens to Nancy Pelosi. And frankly, you know, the elite have done this too about unions. I want to read you this quote from the American Spectator's Melissa McKenzie. I'm sure you've read it about after you being called for universal masking in schools. This woman, this woman being you, has done more damage to America's children than any other single figure. And it's infuriating. She would create a nation of idiots in search of a perfect safety to save teachers from having to do their jobs. You know, I find it disgusting and obscene. But You know, years ago, there were ads um, in the New York Times, in Times Square, that accused me of being responsible for every child in America who couldn't read. So this is propaganda. You know, it is part and parcel, unfortunately, of our political terrain. And I would, frankly, take any of those comments each and every day if I can actually do whatever I can to make sure that schools are open this year, that kids are thriving, that they have what they need to, you know, become prepared for life, career, citizenship. It's just part of what we have to go through. And it's sad, but it gets to the distrust and the political debate in this country. But certainly criticism is sometimes justified. But let's talk about you sometimes justified. And it's sometimes look what has happened. Look what happens when democracies die. What you see is this level of political rhetoric that tries to undermine people who are trying to do the best they can in positions of power that try to move an agenda. So I just, you know, Media Matters has actually debunked several of these comments. But what has happened is that these do not get the oxygen that Fox has. And, you know, it is what it is. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Michael Pollan, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Randy Weingarten after the break. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. One of the things you talked about was trauma, which I do think is at the heart of a lot of this. A school is a social-emotional experience. I want you to assess the impact of that lost year on normal schooling. What toll do you think it's had on kids? Oh, I think what COVID has done more than anything else, it has put people into isolation. And so, you know, you're with your pods, you're with your family, but you're not with a bigger community. And that has, I think, hurt more than anything else. That community, that play, that interaction in schools. And that's part of why people don't like masks, because it's not natural to be wearing a mask instead of being able to see facial expressions, talk to people, talk to kids. It's not natural to be wearing a mask when you're playing outside. So I think the isolation issues, the mental and the social distress issues, the not being able to be in community, those things have been the worst aspects, obviously, with the exception of people whose families have lost someone of COVID. What are you going to do to help students catch up and regain their mental and physical health? There's two things that we have to do. Wrapping services around schools, having the nurses, having the social workers, the guidance counselors, so that you have embedded systems of support for kids and for teachers. You don't know what's going to trigger when. And the second piece is, is that project-based instruction, capstone projects, finding ways for kids to not only work in teams, but critically think, um, have a project, problem-solving. Embedding that is going to be an academic accelerant. And you can do it in an age-appropriate way, but embedding these kind of things. So one survey found 78% of teachers reported frequent job-related stress since the beginning of the year. What are you doing to support them? Because you also have huge teacher shortages at the same time. Correct. Um, One in four teachers is considering, this is a RAND study, just want to note it, considering quitting by the end of 2020-2021 school year. You know, we have a very schizophrenic view of educators. So when educators say, I want to be in school, but I want it to be safe, as seven out of 10 of my members did all last school year, and we advocate for those things, you see what some of the public reaction has been. And I say it's schizophrenic to some extent because 
we are revered and reviled at the same time. And I think that parents got a front row seat a lot this year in watching the remote. So you're talking about two different things is teachers had a lot of goodwill during the Trump era, launching successful uh, Red for Ed movement, demanding higher pay and public school funding, walkouts in 2018 and 19 had a lot of support. Has this pandemic lost the goodwill or do you think it's gained the goodwill? No, I don't think the pandemic has lost the goodwill. I think that there's been a lot of agita about not being in schools. But I think that by and large, teachers have the goodwill of parents. I think that the school reopening piece is the single most important thing we can do to calm the country. All right. So it's obviously forced a lot of experimentation, how we learn, pods, remote learning. How do you imagine schools will be different in the next 10 years? Well, I think that these two concepts that I just talked about, wrapping services around schools. So schools are more of community centers and foundational centers to communities, including making sure that families have the medical, the mental health services, broadband, things like that. And frankly, I do think technology is here to stay. It's going to help in some ways. It can't um, substitute for um, education. Sure. But but the digital divide has been rather profound in this pandemic. One study last year estimated during the switch to virtual learning, 3 million students dropped off the grid. How do you get those people back? Because that's a national decline in public school enrollment right. during the pandemic. And that's part of the reason why in these grants that I announced in May 2021, that there are 70 grants, they affect about 1,800 locals of our 3,500. We gave out about million. Many of them, our members are going door to door to parents and to um, bring them back to schooling, but really having conversations with them. We're working with districts in this way. Um, Rio Rancho, the superintendent told me of the 900 kids that have fallen off the grid, 875 are back. Um, Cleveland just told me on Saturday when I was there, 2,700 kids are coming back. But, you know, at the beginning of this pandemic, Kara, I was on the phone with several of the internet companies. I begged them to do what AT&T had done in a couple of places, just charge people $10, give them internet. What did the wealthy people say to you? No, they said no. They said, oh, we'll do a couple of little projects and experiments. Like you can't do a couple of projects and experiments. You have the wiring here. Why not just say to parents, you know, wire it? Back in July, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and the Walton Family Foundation announced Advanced Education Research and Development Fund, $200 million. They've popped in and out, a lot of these tech people, into the education space. What do you make of them trying to do that? And can they actually help going forward? Or do you, are you just like, well, rich people? Well, no, they can help going forward if they actually help going forward, as opposed to try to social engineer it. Meaning, we have to listen to the people who are closest to the classroom. All right. I want to move on to the national debate on standardized testing. You criticize what you call this country's test fixation. Do we need to cool it on standardized testing this year? Yes. Tell me why. I think, look, accountability and assessing kids' learning is very important. But what has happened is we have been completely fixated on, you know, reducing kids to test scores and teachers to algorithms, as opposed to actually trying to figure out, are we teaching our kids learning? Do kids have the skills and knowledge they need to be ready for life, for civics, for all of these things? So, you know, what we've learned from the data is that classroom experience 
um, is the single biggest predictor of how well kids are going to do. So why not try to figure out an assessment system, an accountability system that's closer to that? We know that social emotional learning is really key. That's not part of the testing regimen. So the NEA published a piece about racist beginnings of standardized testing. And obviously there's a lot of data to show low-income communities tend to suffer from bias and high-stakes standardized testing. What's your take? Are these tests instruments of racism? So I want to be very careful about calling anything an instrument of racism in this moment of time when, you know, words matter. I think that the origins of the so-called choice movement in schooling was about trying to get around Brown versus Board of Education and was about trying to get around equity and integration. And if you look at the testing, you see that there is bias that's in some of this testing, bias in some of the questions and things like that. I'm sure that the intent was not racialized this way. And in fact, some of the people who have supported testing so much are some of the legacy civil rights movements who would say that kids were invisible without the testing. So I think there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of sexism, there's a lot of homophobia, there's a lot of Islamophobia, there's a lot of anti-Asian bigotry, there's a lot of hate right now. And I think what we need to do is we need to find ways that unify the country and find that what binds us together is far more important than what divides us. We need to find a way to move forward from the crises that we have had in the country. All right. Um, you've defended what you called, quote, honest history, which, of course, is a loaded word uh, because that would be dishonest uh, otherwise. And you say you have a $2.5 million legal defense funds ready to go up to deal with issues around the controversies around critical race theory that are being pushed by many on the right. How is the union preparing to fight over this issue? Well, it's again, it's what are we doing to make sure that kids have access to the information that they need so that they can arrive at their own conclusions, so that they can critically think. And we can't have huge swaths of our history being invisible to our kids. And so when I say honest history, what I mean, yes, of course, every term these days is loaded one way That's or the a loaded other. one, though. That's but, a definite loaded so one. So you say, so is slavery honest history? Did slavery happen in the country? What are the ramifications of slavery? And I mean, this is curriculum has been established for teachers K-12, you know, by state education departments. We should be able to teach that and we should be able to have kids have conversation about that. That sometimes is uncomfortable. This is not just for kids whose ancestors may have been um, slaves. This is for all kids. How do we make sure that we know about the good and the bad of the great American experiment? Why do you think it's picked up so much steam? You had a meeting with Bannon, Steve Bannon, is that correct? Uh, He's talked about the issue that it's such a good political issue. Right, because what they want to do is, again, you know, what the Bannon faction does is they want to create chaos and confusion. And in that chaos and confusion, they believe that Trump and his acolytes 
will actually win the day because they believe that the that kind of autocratic leadership people will go to. That's their theory of the case. They want that division. And they have said that publicly, that they thought it was a great issue because, you know, you there is still racism in the country. And the right wing is exploiting, you know, some kids coming home saying, look, we learned about slavery. And that was a really bad piece in America. Like white people shouldn't have done that to black people. So somebody's going to say, well, somebody made my kid feel bad. And that's terrible. It's not trying to make any kids feel bad. It is our history. And we have to actually see it, acknowledge it, confront it, and actually, I think, be jubilant in the fact that we can overcome this. Are you confident that is going to happen? Because, you know, of course, I'm not confident that's going to happen. But the struggle of trying to make this a better nation, trying to make this a more just nation, trying to make sure that public education works for all kids in an equitable way, these are important struggles. And teachers and unions are in the middle of this right now. And, you know, and so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make sure that kids can have a holistic education so they can make their own decisions and arrive at their own conclusions. All right, Randy, thank you so much. And good luck with this opening. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Thanks, Kara. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Caitlin O'Keefe. Edited by Naeem Araza. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Sabaro, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Kristen Lin. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lin, and Liriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you in person with a lecture on Locke's social contract, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. And for more on the debate over vaccine mandates, check out the latest episode of the New York Times opinion podcast, The Argument. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.